Hey, you guys, you ought to know better. Don't applaud before, always applaud after. No, no, don't always even do that. You just never know what I'm going to say, so don't, don't anticipate anything like that. Uh, anyway, it's great to see you. Welcome uh, to all the, I guess we're, we're joining with all the other campuses, and I'm really glad to see everyone uh, here. And I see you through the screen out there at the different campuses. I'm really glad you're out there, at least in my mind's eye, I see everyone. Uh, glad we can be together to get around together around God's Word. Uh, really, really fun to do that with you every week. I've been having a great time studying the book of Ephesians. Have you been liking Ephesians? Yeah. How many of you have been actually reading Ephesians during the week, anything? Anybody? Raise your hands. That's great. How many did, but then gave up after, you know? Yeah, that's okay. Well, go back to it, okay? And I really want to encourage you, uh, make this time in Ephesians something that you can add on to your regular Bible reading uh, to study it for yourself as well. Uh, it's amazing what you'll get out of it as we get through it week by week, but you need to be reading it, just like I'm reading it constantly as I prepare, uh, and as everyone is doing that, because uh, I'm not the only one teaching Ephesians. Did you notice that? Uh, we've got some campus pastors who have been taking a few every fourth or fifth week, something like that. So anyway, I, uh, I had a, a professor when I was in graduate school who had a very rough upbringing. He was a small boy when his, very, very small boy, when his father abandoned the family. And he acted out as a result of it and was kind of uh, a problem child. And then his mom came to faith, and uh, not too long after that, she met a man uh, who also knew the Lord, and they married. And this new man in their life adopted my old prof, gave him a new name. And this boy still acted out still was problematic. His behavior was not what we would call positive. And one day, his new adopted dad sat down with him and said, tell me what your name is, because he had a new name. And he said, this is my name. And he said, well, you need to live in accordance with your new name. You are not who you were. You have a new name, and with that name comes a new calling. And it changed his life. It was even before he knew the Lord, he knew that he was, had a new name, he was in a new family, and he had a new calling. And then after that he came to the Lord, actually became a great preacher, and uh, was one of my preaching professors. The reason I mention that story is that we are called, just like the people in Ephesus were, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, to walk in accordance to our new name that we have in Jesus. We are no longer identified as we once were. We have tremendous wealth. We have a tremendous eternal portfolio. And today, when we look at Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, we are transitioning from our wealth that's been examined in chapters 1 through 3 
to our walk. If you remember, chapters 1 through 3 deal with the great wealth that we have in our spiritual portfolio. And uh, in chapter 1, we examine the riches of redemption. Then in chapter 2, the first part, the riches of regeneration, of new life in Jesus. And then in chapter 2 to the end, from 11 to 22, it deals with the riches of reconciliation, how Jesus made all people, Jew and Gentile, and all people one in him by reconciling us to God. And then uh, chapter 3 is the riches of revelation, how God has revealed this church. And now we're in chapter 4, and there's a shift in chapter 4 from our wealth to our walk. We need to live in light of that wealth. So if you have your Bible, would you turn to Ephesians 4? Uh, in Ephesians 4, 1, we're going to read the whole part that says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a ma manner worthy of your calling. There's an urgency here to start walking in light of our wealth, to start living in light of our new name, to start acting like we're wealthy spiritually. That's what this is about. And uh, the first aspect of our walk that should reflect our new position is that we are to walk in unity. So get out your Bible, Ephesians chapter 4. Let's stand as we honor God's word. And I'll read, you follow along from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I... Therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's where we're gonna stop. You can have a seat. This is a strong statement calling us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling and to walk in that way is to walk in unity. It tells us that we have to walk in unity. And I think uh, this exhortation is just as crucial today as it was when Paul wrote it to the Ephesians. Because unity is hard to come by. There are so many things that divide followers of Jesus that divide congregations. When you think about the kinds of divisions that people have, there's always doctrinal divisions. I know about doctrinal divisions. People will call the radio when I'm on the radio and they'll ask me about some controversial subject like uh, the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. And I always say the same thing. Now, there are a lot of different views about this. I'm gonna share my view, but I want you to know that we're all on the same side, that there's no good guys or bad guys about that, this, 
uh, that we're going to agree to disagree without being disagreeable and we can all take a look at this passage together. And I think I'm being so nice and then I lay out what I think it is. Then I get the hate mail. <laughs> you are lost and going to hell because I don't agree with you about this. And I've seen this happen in congregations where people have a difference about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit or other doctrinal issues like the rapture. Now this is something that should really divide believers. We all believe that Jesus is coming, right? But some people believe that the rapture will be before the tribulation. Some people think in the middle. Some people think near the end. Some people think after the tribulation. Some think there's no rapture at all. And therefore, we can hate each other over this. <laughs> and when I teach what I think the Bible says about this, I get that hate mail. And I have known congregations that have split over pre-trib versus pre-wrath. Like that is an issue of urgency. I'll tell you what's urgent in this passage. Unity. That's what's urgent. There's other things that cause people to, uh, to, to split I, or argue or fight. It's sort of methodological differences. Everyone knows that the only way to worship is with the classic hymns of the past <laughs> that reflect the theology that is so deep and so meaningful. And we hate contemporary music, which just says the same thing over and over again. No, 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 no. We hate hymns. They use words that are old-fashioned. No one knows what angels prostrate fall means. My uncle had to have surgery for that, you know? <laughs> Here's the point. People fight over something as stupid as that. They fight over it, and they divide the, the body of Jesus the Messiah over that. Uh, there's personal differences. I don't like that preacher's style. You know, I've heard people say about my style of preaching, he's too New York. <laughs> I'm not sure what that means. He's too New York. I think it means he's too Jewish. It may or may not be, or it could be he's too abrasive, probably more likely. But the point is, people don't like certain kinds of styles. I don't like that person's politics. He's a Democrat. Or he's a Republican. As if that should divide the body of Jesus the Messiah. Isn't that something? People divide over such stupid things. I don't even like that person's friends, you might say. So there are all these divisions, whether it's uh, doctrinal, methodological, personal. There's also real selfish differences where we think of ourselves as, why is he teaching? You know, that's what people say every week when I come up here. Why is he teaching? What's that guy? I should be teaching. I'm a better teacher, I'm just as good. Or why is she in that position? Why is she 
in charge of the kids program here. I could do just as good a job or better. Or, well, what in the world? Why don't we have the nursery in this way, the way I think it should be run? Why is that guy an elder? <sighs> I should be an elder. You see that? You may think no one will ever admit those thoughts, but they have them. People do have those thoughts. And then they launch a guerrilla campaign, and next thing you know, the body of Jesus, the Messiah, is divided. So here's what Paul says. He says in verse 1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then in verse 2, he says, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, love, or eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of love. Here's what he is saying. We are urgently called to unity. And when he says this word walk, by the way, I, I want to give you a little background on the word walk. There's a Hebrew word that goes as the background for the word walk. And in Greek, it just means your manner of life. But I, re I recognize that Paul, who wrote this, was a Pharisee. And there's a Pharisaic term for the Hebrew word halakha. It, halakha was a term that was used and is used in rabbinics for how to obey the law of Moses. And it's the precise rules for obeying the law of Moses. And Paul grabs that word out and he takes it and he uses it in Greek. But what he is saying is this is our halakha, our walk. And it's not the precise laws of the law of Moses, but it's instead, this is how we walk in the Spirit. This is how we live our life by the power of God's Spirit. It's not a rigid set of rules. It's the guidance of the Holy Spirit that, that leads us. And so he tells us, he urgently calls us to walk. And uh, there are actually two characteristics uh, well, there's several aspects of these distinct, there's several distinctive characteristics, not just two, there's four here. Uh, but the first one is humility. He says, walk with all humility. Now, that's a hard one, because once we think we've attained humility, that's when we've lost it, don't you think? Uh, walk with all humility. How is it that we can actually achieve humility? Well, first of all, uh, we have to understand who we are understand who we are. Someone once said that uh, standing, understanding who we are is standing as tall as we can next to God. Then we understand who we are. This is what Teddy Roosevelt did. He went off into the wilderness with a friend, and uh, his friend was named William Beebe. He would go out right before they would go to sleep in the wilderness. They would go out and stare up at the stars, and they would search for a tiny patch of light near the constellation of Pegasus. And uh, this is what Roosevelt would say. That is the spiral galaxy in Andromeda. It's as large as our Milky Way. It is 100 million galaxies, each larger than our sun. Then Roosevelt would turn to William Beebe and say, now I think we're small enough, let's go to bed. He understood who he was in relation to the galaxy. Well, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12, it says that God holds the universe in the span 
of his hand. So we shouldn't compare ourselves to the universe, to the creation. We should stand in relation to the creator who holds all that in just the span of his hand. And when we stand next to God as tall as we can, then we understand really how small we are compared to our Lord. And so understanding ourselves is, I think, one way that we really get how small we are compared to what we think we are. So we have to understand ourselves, and if we want to achieve humility, we also have to learn that it's not about me. You know, everything's always, when we talk about stuff, I, particularly I, I teach college students who think it's all about them. It's all about me. And we professors know it's all about us. <laughs> but really, the idea of humility is to focus on others, not about ourselves at all. So not only understand who we are in relation to God, but also to focus on others instead of ourselves. That's how we can achieve humility. This is what C.S. Lewis said about humility. Don't imagine that if you, really, if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He'll not be the sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. Probably all you'll think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. True humility, I think, is not thinking of yourself, less of yourself, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That's the idea. So the first way to find unity there is with humility. And then secondly, it's gentleness, a word that's sometimes translated meekness. Like Jesus used it when he said, blessed are the meek or blessed are the gentle. Uh, it says there, with all humility and gentleness in verse 2. What does that mean? Well, this word, meek, we think of some kind of fearful guy. That's not what it means in Greek. It's a very unique word. Uh, how many used to watch the old Bob Newhart show? Okay, find that. If it's, if it's like on... I love that show. But the, there was this guy on the show, Mr. Peterman, who was terrified of his wife. That's what we think of as, uh, as meek. That's not what it means. It was used of horses that had been tamed, powerful war horses that did what their master said. It meant, it means strength under control. Think of the movie, The Black Stallion, the wild black horse, that, that uh, thundering racehorse that the little boy is able to ride because, this movie you probably don't remember, it's probably 35 years old, but he's able to do that because that horse has strength under control. And that's what we need. It doesn't mean that we're weak if we pursue gentleness or meekness. It's pursuing strength under control. It's using our strength to do what is right in the right way. My favorite example of true strength under control is, and I hate to admit this because I'm a big New York Yankees fan, but my favorite baseball player of all time was Jackie Robinson. Uh, you know, I'm from Brooklyn, so that's good, you know. Uh, but 
Jackie Robinson was chosen by Branch Rickey because he had strength under control. For a couple of years, Rickey said to him, you're going to break the color. Now, he was not the best baseball player, best African-American baseball player, but he was the one who had the best character. He had strength under control. He says, they're going to call you every name in the book, Ricky told him. They're going to curse at you. They're going to come in sliding into second base with their spikes up. They're going to do everything they can to provoke a conflict. And you can't fight back or you'll ruin it for all. And he asked Jackie Robinson, do you have the strength to do that? And Jackie Robinson did, and that's how he broke the color line. He was the great example of meekness, of true meekness in the Bible, of strength under control. Then there's a third characteristic uh, of what it's saying here, that uh, these distinctive characteristics that achieve unity. The third one is right here. It says patience. Do you see that one? Patience. In verse 3, humility, gentleness with patience. Patience means long-suffering, some versions say. Uh, here's what I, I'll give you my definition of the word. Okay, you ready? The ability to endure aggravation without striking back. The ability to endure aggravation without striking back. Someone who could act vengefully, could fight back, but chooses not to. Now, uh, I'm going to give you my favorite illustration of this, and that's my dog, Jake. There he is. He is a boxer. Now, the way we got Jake is that there was a little crime wave in our neighborhood, and in that crime wave, uh, Eva said, you know, we need to get a dog with presents. We always had collies. And she said, we need a dog with presents. I don't want another dog, I said. She said, no, no, we need a dog with presents. And then she find him, found him on rescue. And he's this kind of scary-looking boxer. You could see how he looks. Don't you see that? Right? Yeah. So we named him Jake. But he loves my granddaughter. He just thinks she's the best. And he takes it as his job to supervise her at all times. <laughs> and this, these pictures, I have probably about 20 pictures of this. This was taken over a long period of time. He just sits there. Now she's a little bit older. He gets right there in the middle of wherever she is playing, and she says to him, Jake, quoted. <laughs> Jake doesn't care. He's there with her. Now, the interesting thing to me is that he will growl if there's a sketchy character walking near us while we walk him. He'll just growl at the guy, like, don't come near. But my little granddaughter, when she learned how to stand, I'll tell you how she did it. She would be next to him, and she would grab a hold of his ear and pull herself up. <laughs> and the first time she did that, I was about uh, eight feet away, and I lunged to stop her because I thought, I mean, he's a good dog, but... What will he do? And instead, well, all he did, he was sitting there, and she's pulling herself up, and he looked at me and said, huh. <laughs> but could you help? <laughs> and that's how she learned to stand. He was her prop. Let me pull your ear off, and I'll stand up. 
And he never once, no matter how aggravating she was, he never once struck back. Can you imagine being as patient as Jake when people aggravate us? No, that's not my normal attitude. My attitude is strike back, give it back. But Jake's our role model. Patience. Fourth characteristic of these distinctive characteristics that we're urgently called to is acceptance. It says in verse 2, bearing with one another in love. Some people call that forbearance. I call it accepting each other. The ability to put up with petty annoyances, not driven by bitterness uh, or resignation. I'm not putting it up with it because there's nothing else I can do. But I'm driven by love to put up with petty annoyances. Uh, listen, I'm going to be really truthful for you. I have many, many annoying habits and personality traits. You may never have guessed that. But I'm going to tell you my worst characteristic. I am unbelievably stubborn. I, when I get a hold of something, I make a bulldog look like he's passive. I am stubborn. Stubborn, stubborn, stubborn. My mom used to say to me when I was a kid, Michael, I pity your wife. I was like 12 years old. <laughs> you will be the worst husband ever. Because <laughs> I was so stubborn. And I still am stubborn, to be honest. But here's what I did. I found the one woman in the world that is forbearing of my stubbornness. In fact, she loves me enough that she appreciates it. Can you imagine that? If you ask Eva why she loves me, this is what she'd say. And of course, this comes from the background that we have World War II, my parents going through the Holocaust. She said, listen, if I were stuck in Warsaw and the Nazis invaded and someone needed to have the stubbornness and the determination to get me out, Michael has it. He would save me. And so she actually likes what everyone else hates about me. I always tell that to my boys. Marry the girl that loves you for what everyone else hates about you. That's what it means to bear with one another in love. That's what that's talking about. To finding those negative traits and seeing the good in it and loving that person for those negative traits, if you can imagine. So, it's... It's really clear here that there are these distinctive characteristics and they're urgently needed. Look at verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The word eager means make every effort. You know, I, I, I hardly ever read from a commentary, but I read what Marcus Bart had to say about this word. He says, it's hardly possible to render exactly the urgency contained in the underlying Greek verb. Not only haste and passion, but a full effort of the whole man, man is meant, involving his will, his sentiment, his reason, his physical strength, and total attitude. That's what it means to be eager to maintain unity, to pursue it. Uh, 
and to maintain it is to guard it, to protect it. We desperately need unity. Why? Because unity is what builds up a congregation and what destroys it more than anything else is division. I don't know how much division you have encountered in your life. I was once helping out at a congregation that was probably the most problematic congregation I'd ever seen. And the reason I went to help it was because it was so problematic. Although, when I was teaching about, you know, congregational work at Moody, I would tell students, if you see a problematic congregation, don't help. Run. Run. Because if you try to help, they will kill you. They will call you Satan, you know. Stay away. It's much easier to have a baby than raise the dead. It is... And yet, I stupidly went in there to help them. And next thing you know, the whole thing blew up in division. And in, truly, in my life, I have never felt so bad. There is nothing ever, you know, we have faced illness, we have faced family crises, we have faced all sorts of troubles. That one thing, a divided congregation, was the hardest thing I've ever encountered, if you can imagine. That's why uh, it's so dangerous to have division, and it's why we are called urgently to unity. And it's also why Psalm 133 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. So we see that there's these distinctive characteristics, and also unity is urgently needed. We desperately need it. Now, how are we going to get it? I mean, we know we have those characteristics. Uh, unity uh, requires urgent effort. That's, I think we have to move ahead with some of these outlines. I've been preaching without mentioning the outlines. That's what I was talking about. This urgent effort of, of uh, where it says that we should uh, eager for unity and also... Uh, we eagerly, eagerly look for it and we guard it and it's urgently needed because division destroys and unity builds up. Okay, now how are we going to get it? We get it because, secondly, this is the big main idea or big point, I guess we could say, big, big second point, is that we already have a spiritual foundation of unity from or in the triune God. Look at verse 4. The beginning part. There is one body and one spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, is the means of our unity. He says there's one body. That means all believers, regardless of our backgrounds, regardless of our denominations, regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of anything in our backgrounds, Everyone who believes in Jesus is baptized by one spirit and placed into the one body of Jesus the Messiah. We are all unified that way. That's why he says there's one body. We are right here, Harvest Bible Chapel. It's a congregation of many congregations. You know, we have all these different campuses, but that's not all. There are all these other believing congregations in Illinois, and we're one with them. And there are congregations all over the United States and we're all part of that universal body. And all over the world, 
There are people who believe, just as we do, that Jesus died for us and rose again, and he redeemed us, and therefore we are all part of that one universal body. How is that achieved? By the Holy Spirit, one spirit who places us into the body. That's what one body and one spirit. The Holy Spirit, we're all, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, we have been all made to drink of one spirit. So God the Holy Spirit is active in providing us a way of achieving unity. He is the means of our unity, one body, one spirit. Secondly, God the Son is the focus of our unity. God the Son is the focus of our unity. Look at verse uh, uh, four. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. The one hope, what is our hope? Our hope, our one hope, is that one day the Lord Jesus is going to descend and establish a kingdom on earth. That is what the Bible calls the blessed hope. The blessed hope. And so we have one hope. That's in the Lord Jesus, in his return. We have one Lord. That's Jesus himself, the Lord Jesus himself. He is our one Lord. We all have only one master, one king, the Lord Jesus. And then it says we have one faith. Do you see that? Uh, It says one Lord, one faith. What is that faith? Here's the gospel in a nutshell. You want to know what the gospel is? Jesus died for our sins and rose again, proving he's God. That's it. If we believe that, that's one faith. There may be other things that divide us, but that one faith that we have in that message, that unites us. So we have uh, one hope, one Lord, one faith, and it says one baptism. Now, this is talking about not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's talking about baptism by water. When we go down in the water, we die with Jesus. We're identifying with his death. And when we come up, we're identifying with his life. That's it. It's identifying us with Jesus. And that's why every follower of Jesus should be baptized, because it identifies us with him forever. So. How do we have unity? First, the Spirit is the means. Second, the Son is our focus. And third, God the Father is the source of our unity. It says in verse six, we have one God. By the way, there is only one God. He's triune, but there's only one God. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That word one, can, can include the idea of a composite unity, but he is one. There's one God that we have. We all worship that one God. And it also says, not just one God, but one Father. We are all together in the family. One family. And of course, we understand that since we all share one Father, we're all in the same family, right? And of course, we also know that our families never argue. Never have any problems in our families. There's no bickering. Uh, There's no one like saying, Aunt Sadie, I don't talk to her. None of that, right? 
No, actually, we do know that in the family there are conflicts. But this is how I understand what Paul is saying, that we have one father, so therefore we're all in the same family. In uh, Genesis 13, there was strife between Abram and Lot's herders. Do you remember that? And Abram goes to see Lot, and he says about the conflict, these things ought not to be. Why? For we are kinsmen. We are brothers is literally what it says. We're family, and it ought not to be. We have to constantly remember that that person that's annoying me shares the same father as I do. It's, I mean, I look at my own family, and I, I'm not talking, I'm talking about my siblings. They could be really annoying, honestly. And I always remind myself, those sisters of mine, I love them. Do you know why? We share the same family. Th this is just unheard of that families shouldn't get together, although we see it all the time. It should not be. These things ought not to be, for we're family. That's what Abram said. That's what we ought to say. We all share the same father. Uh, so here's the point of what this passage is saying. Why are we supposed to walk in unity? We are to walk in unity because the one God has given us the basis for it. We are to walk in the manner of which we have called, which is unity. We have to walk in the manner with which we have been called through unity because the one God has called us to it and he has established everything we need to live that way. We must walk in unity because the triune God has called us to it. That is why we need to be one. Well, let me give you a quick now what. What should we do in light of this passage? What do we take away from this? First, I think we need to pursue peace. If I look at that situation, there are people in the family, people in the community, people in the congregation that we might not be getting along with. Here's what we need to do. We, when we know of it, we need to go and resolve the conflict. It may even mean humbling ourselves and apologizing. We must resolve the conflict. So what we have to do is pursue peace more than anything else. Do everything we can when we know there's a conflict to pursue peace. Secondly, practice acceptance. You know, love covers a multitude of sins. Sometimes the very things that annoy people, those very things, uh, we have to practice acceptance. Say, this is what they are. We're going to bear with one another in love. Actually, that verse here where it says bearing with one another in love and the passage in Colossians 3 that says similarly, that's how I always, when I used to do marriage counseling, that's the first thing. We're going to start with this verse, I'd say, because I know you're annoying each other. This is where we're starting, bearing with one another in love. And so we have to practice acceptance. And then third, and this is really important, the way to preserve unity in a congregation is if you can't resolve it, leave graciously. Leave graciously if necessary. In other words, I can't bear what they're teaching about the Holy Spirit at this congregation. I just can't deal with it. You know, it's a different view than mine. So what do we say? Leave graciously. Don't disrupt the place. Don't make a fight. Leave graciously. Follow that example of Abram and Lot. What does he say? You go that way? Of 
my people will go this way. We'll just separate. But we ought not to have a conflict. There may be times where you just finally say, I'm going to leave, not because I don't love these people, but I see things differently. And therefore, there are times to save unity by leaving graciously. Let me just tell you this. I read a book not too long ago. It's called Jerusalem, a biography by a guy named Claude, Claude, I think? No, Hugh Montefiore. Uh, and it starts off, it's the history of Jerusalem, but it starts off in AD 70 as Jerusalem is being burned by the Romans and the temple is being destroyed. And he goes to the one thing, why did this revolt against Rome in AD 66, which started so well, why does it end in failure? Because all the different factions that were fighting for Jerusalem decided to fight among themselves. They lost their focus. Instead of fighting their one enemy, they instead chose to turn their fire on each other, and they lost. And my friends, we have one focus, to honor the Lord Jesus. And we have an enemy that's trying to hinder our glorification of him. And what do we do rather than focusing on him? Too often we turn our fire on each other. No, no. We're going to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We're going to walk in unity because God urgently is calling us to it. And the triune God has enabled us to live in unity. Let's pray together. God, our Father, thank you for your good word that reminds us of our need for unity. Oh Lord, I pray for these people right here that you by your spirit and by our focus on the Lord Jesus and by being our Father that you would indeed make us one and that we would fulfill the prayer of the Lord Jesus that we would be one in him. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.